Well, this morning, let me remind you that our theme for 2024 is together. And you'll remember that I spent some time away in July praying over this last July, praying over this coming year and found myself drawn to the book of Ephesians and, uh, and this particular theme. As I mentioned already, our theme beginning Wednesday, Ash Wednesday, is going to be together in Ascent. And we'll be looking at these Psalms of Ascent along with the Gospel of Mark to guide us in our journey. But for the winter, our theme is together in Christ Jesus. And you'll remember when we first began this journey in the book of Ephesians, and we're going to refer to Ephesians all through the year. This is just an introduction. <clears throat> but in the book of Ephesians, um, you find that phrase, in Christ Jesus, or in Christ, or in him, 36 times, just in this one short letter. It is foundational to Paul's theology that we are positionally in Christ as Christians. And there's a lot to say about that, and we're going to have more conversation about it as the year unfolds. But what I want us to do today is somewhat complete a conversation we began last Sunday morning. Y'all remember last Sunday morning, if you were here, we looked at this text in Ephesians 4, and we talked about shepherds and teachers, and we skipped over the first three functions or roles that are mentioned in Ephesians 4, and I want us to look at them today. So I entitled the message today, Onward and Upward Together, and the text is found for us in Ephesians 4. We're only going to look at verses 11 through 13. If you were to look at this in the Greek New Testament, Paul wrote this in Greek, Verses 11 through 16 is just one long sentence that's very much like Paul. He, he loves long, dense, challenging, grammatical sentences. Obviously, he was reared in Alabama. He grew up in that context where we understand these things. Um, but Paul loves these long sentences. He challenges us to think deeply that's really what's going on here. And so we're not going to look at the entire sentence. We're going to just carve out a little bit. And what happens in translation is the NIV is what's called a dynamic equivalent translation. So it tries to capture the essence of what Paul is saying without being slavishly tied to the grammar of the Greek. Does that make sense? Which I think is the best way to do it if you're going to read it in, in, in another language, okay? So with that said, look at chapter 4, verse 11, <clears throat> after Paul has talked about the, the incarnation and the ascension of Jesus, he says in verse 11, so Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, now, now literally, the, the, probably the literal translation would read like this, Christ himself gave some as apostles, some as prophets some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. But do y'all hear that emphasis? He gave some, uh, and that's an important distinction, I believe. So with that said, let me just begin with this general statement before we 
try to unpack apostles, prophets, and evangelists. But apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers. Many scholars, people who are studying the role of the church today refer to that as the APEST. Does that make sense? That's the acronym. These designations refer to leaders given to the church by Christ. This is not an exhaustive list of all the spiritual gifts given to the full body of Christ. All believers, not just those mentioned in Ephesians 4, 11 through 13, are given spiritual gifts to serve and edify the church. So does that make sense? Not everybody is going to fit into one of these functions. Not everybody is going to be an apostle, a prophet, an evangelist, a shepherd, or teacher. These are leaders that are given to the church. Functions, roles to be played in the body. But the fuller body of Christ, we have to search elsewhere in the New Testament for guidance. So for example, Romans 12, Paul lists a whole different group of spiritual gifts that are given to church members, members of the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14, that's probably the lengthiest discussion of giftedness where Paul outlines various spiritual gifts that are given to the full body. So I want to make sure that not everybody is going to necessarily be included in these five functions. But I think it's important for us to understand what these functions are, and that's why I want us to unpack them. Does that make sense? It's not for everybody. I get it. But for all of us, I think it's important for us to understand why these roles are important, okay? So, with that said, <clears throat> you remember last week I gave you a little diagram. I want, I want to give you a better diagram today when you think about APEST. Um, there's a guy named John Rittner. He's written a book, one of my favorite little books. The name of the book is Positively Irritating. It's one of my all-time favorite titles. Um, look at this little diagram he's come up with. He says, when he thinks about these five functions in the church, Here's how he sees it. You'll see the shepherd in the middle connected to everybody. Does that make sense? The prophet at the top basically hearing a word from God and sharing that word with the church. You see the evangelist who is on the left side pulling people into the body of Christ. You see the apostle to the right pushing the church forward into new frontiers. And you have the teacher at the bottom keeping you grounded in the Word of God. Does, does that all make sense? That's his take on how this might um, function together in a very dynamic, synergistic, symbiotic kind of relationship. I like that diagram. I think that's it's been helpful to me to try to think through all of this. Now, let me offer a word of clarity. When we talk about these five functions, APEST, each role is a new covenant function uniquely crafted by Christ to serve his church. So I think it's really important for us to have that in our mind. Each one of these are new covenant functions. And the reason I think that's important is because a lot of times when we hear the word prophet, we think of an old covenant model. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. There's nothing wrong with that, but... Christ has given prophets, apostles, evangelists in the new covenant to the church. So we can learn from the old covenant, but this is a whole new dynamic now that Christ has come, okay? 
So here's what we're going to do today. We're going to talk about the first three on the list. Apostles, prophets, evangelists. Y'all remember, we talked about this a little bit last week. Many times when you're in this conversation with those who are studying the modern expression of these, these folks are referred to as the apes, okay? And in other words, what they mean is they tend to kind of live together. It's kind of fascinating when you look at, at how they're lived out in the church. So what I would like to do before I talk about apostles, prophets, and evangelists individually, I want to help you understand, if you don't already, some of you may already know this, but there are three basic views about apostles and prophets in particular. So let's, let's take evangelists out of the conversation for a second. Let's just talk about apostles and prophets. Are, are y'all with me? Let's just talk about them. There are three views about those two functions in the church. Let, let me offer them to you. The first one is called the cessationist view. That is the view that I was taught as I was being reared in the church. And that was the uh, view that I actually was taught by some uh, who taught me in seminary. The cessationist view proposes that the roles of both apostles and prophets ceased at the conclusion of the apostolic era. So in other words, at the end of the first century, around, you know, A.D. 100, once all the apostles are dead and the New Testament has been actually written. Now, the New Testament at that time wasn't actually uh, codified, canonized just yet. That's going to take a little while, but it was completed. So this view says, during the first century, Jesus handpicked some apostles, okay, and he also empowered through his spirit a group of people known as prophets. However, once the apostolic era ended, once all the apostles died, and once the New Testament was written, there's no longer any need for apostles or prophets. Does that make sense? That's called the cessationist view. They cease to exist. And I want to be very respectful because some incredible scholars uh, men and women that I deeply trust and highly value their view of the New Testament. Um, that would be their argument. In fact, a couple of my favorite commentaries that I use when I'm studying the Pauline epistles. That is the view of the commentators that I've grown to trust and appreciate. Here's the, here's the challenge that I personally have come to, to have with that view. Um, I just can't find a definitive word in the scripture that tells me those functions no longer exist. They're still listed along with evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. So I'm going to get to that in just a second. Okay? But I, I greatly respect that position because, as I said, that's what I was taught uh, most of my life. Let me give you the second view. The second view is one that's very prominent today, and that is this view, that the sent church... I mean, it's called the Sent Church Gathered Church. This is really my nomenclature to represent the view. This view proposes that the two roles still exist today. However, they're best utilized, apostles and prophets, through the Sent Church. What do we mean by the Sent Church? Well, mission organizations, church planting movements, campus ministries, evangelistic ministries, as opposed to being utilized through the gathered church. That would be like the local church. Okay, so in other words, this view says we still have apostles and prophets, but they're missionaries. 
They're church planters. They, they go and work with mission organizations. They, they go serve evangelistic entities. They're involved in campus ministries. They're not really primarily used in the local church anymore. Does that make sense? Now, that view has been given scholarly underpinning by a man who's, who's very famous in the missiological world. Uh, probably the most famous missiologist in the 20th, 20th century was a man named Ralph Winter. Ralph Winter's brilliant. Um, Y'all might remember back in 2007, Cindy and I went and spent part of the summer in uh, Pasadena, California. And we were residents at the U.S. Center for World Mission. Ralph Winter started the U.S. Center for World Mission. And it it was a brain trust of some of the finest missiologists in the world. And they gathered together and they researched and they studied and they wrote and um, they were just the, our greatest minds really. Um, the people like Greg Parsons and Dr. Winter. Dr. Winter was still alive in those days. So Cindy and I went there to study. And when we met Ralph Winter, we, read him, we met him our very second night there. We were going to be there most of the summer at a picnic, a, a big picnic that everybody came to. And he came up to us and he said, I heard that you two are going to be residents here for the summer. Why are you here? And I told him, I said, well, we're here to study with you all, to learn missiology. Uh, Mike Stroop recommended we come here. He said, I love Mike Stroop. He said, he's one of the finest missiologists we have alive today. I said, thank you. We're glad that he recommended this. He brokered the relationship with Greg so we could come. Thank you for hosting us. He said, so why are you here? I said, we're getting ready to start a church-based sending model. His very first words to me was, those never work. So I'm looking forward to spending this time with y'all. And he left. So here I am, the the brainchild of 20th century missiology looked at me and the very first thing was, well, those never work. So we launched our church-based model with a lot of of blessing from our missiological partners. But, But to Dr. Winter's credit, over time, he spent more time with us uh, that summer, and before it was over with, the very last week we were there, every morning they have a morning lecture where a missiologist or a theologian or a scholar will get up and make a presentation, and they present papers and critique the papers. He asked me to make a presentation of what we were going to do, and uh, I was very nervous because he sits right on the front row taking notes. He's the first one to ask questions, okay? And to his credit, what he said back to me was, he said, your church just might be able to pull it off. That's what he told me. Just after listening to where you're coming from. Now, I'm not saying that we do it perfectly, but the point being, here's Ralph Winner's argument. He says there are actually two expressions of the church. There's the gathered church, this. There's the sent church, the IMB, frontiers, pioneers. In other words, Billy Graham Evangelistic Association, Campus Crusades. That makes sense. He said, that's, I would call that the sent church. Ralph's argument would be the apostles and the prophets thrive there, not so much here. He said, because churches tend to defend the status quo. Churches tend to like what they have. And if you put apostles and prophets in there, it can get a little dicey, okay? So here's the third view. The gathered church, sent church view. This would be the view that I have embraced. 
And that is that these two roles still exist today and need to be expressed through the gathered church first and also through the sent church. My argument would be that we need apostles and prophets and evangelists and shepherds and teachers in our local churches to help us be balanced in our ministry life and to challenge us to be more and better than we could ever be without them. I think we need all of them. That's why that image, that diagram that Rittner has drawn, I like. I think that's a beautiful picture of how things ought to work in a local church. That's my personal view. Now, I want y'all to know, I'm still being shaped in it, still being formed in it, because it's just in the recent times, I've really begun to give a whole lot of energy to it. I mean, I've been your pastor for over 23 years. I've never really talked to y'all about it till now. True? Why is that? Well, that's because this past summer, I spent so much time studying Ephesians, and I couldn't get it out of my brain. I'm reading Ephesians 4, and I can't get rid of it. Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, I'm reading it in Greek. It's one long sentence, and it's all connected, and I just can't, I just can't get it out of my system. So um, I'm still being shaped and formed as to what I believe about it all and how I think it's supposed to work. And that's why I just want to share it with y'all. So we're, in a, we're going to be in a year-long conversation about this. I'm just introducing it last week and this week. Is that okay? So with that said, um, let's talk about apostles, prophets, and evangelists. Let's start with the easy one first, evangelists. We kind of all know what evangelists are, okay? Evangelists are gifted bridge builders is what I would say. They are adept at inviting and attracting people through gospel witness to find their way to Christ and his body. Evangelists just offer a catalytic presence to the local church regarding energizing efforts to reach lost people for Christ. Now, let me say this. All Christians have an evangelistic responsibility. We all do. Remember, we've talked about this. We want our church to be evangelistically sensitive. I want every one of us to understand we all have a role to play in evangelism. We're, we're supposed to be sharing the good news. But would y'all, all agree, would y'all not all agree with me? There are some people, though, there are just some people in the church that are just really, really good at it. Would y'all agree with me? There, there are just some people that just have, they just have a knack. It's, it's just who they are. And what I've learned about those people is they can't help themselves. They just can't. They, they, it's, just, it's just who they are. It's just authentic to them. Um, they just have a way. They're uniquely gifted. They just connect with unchurched people. Um, they're good netcasters. They're, they're just good at identifying with what works with lost people. They have a heart for sharing the gospel. They're authentic. It's deep-seated. And what I've learned about evangelists is they can't understand why you're not just like them. You know? So guess what they can do? They can be positively irritating. <laughs> Remember, that's the name of that book. But the key word there is Positively. It's okay to be irritated, in my opinion, if it's positive irritation, because that kind of makes you do something, right? So I love evangelists. I've told y'all before, my brother Emerson is an evangelist. He's just a natural evangelist. It's just who he is. It's authentic. It works. He does it all the time. I, I ought to give y'all his phone number right and let you call him. You ought to hear his, his, his uh, whatever you call his message. You know, he'll say, hey, don't hang up. Don't hang up. I got a couple things I need to know. And he just shares the gospel in his, in his little, whatever that's called, message that you get when you call it. Um, so, and he's just that way. He witnesses to people at the bank drive through He witnesses to people who come to his house. He answers every telemarketer's call. 
Every one of them. Everyone. And he says the same thing every time. I'm going to give you five minutes to tell me what you need to tell me, and then you're going to give me five minutes to tell you what I want to tell you. Deal? I cannot tell you how many people he has prayed and led to Christ over the phone. He's just that way. I never answer a telemarketer call. <laughs> We're just wired differently, okay? Um, I've never led a person to Christ at a bank drive-thru. I've never done that. My brother has. What is it? Is it that I don't care about lost people? No, it's just that Emerson's an evangelist, okay? And he's a gift to the church, and he can be positively irritating. He can. Um, but you know what? Don't you think the church needs them? Of course we do. Praise God for the evangelists. Prophets. Um, let's talk about prophets. This gifting is also mentioned in Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, and actually 14 as well. Prophets are gifted by Christ through his spirit to strengthen, encourage, comfort, and edify the church. Prophets, as I see it, provide both a vertical expression. They call for repentance and right living before God and a horizontal expression addressing ethics and justice and oppression. Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they were used by God in numerous ways in the life of Israel. And y'all know they wrote scripture. Their, their revelation from God was through the inspiration of the Spirit of God and became scripture for us. New Covenant prophets, to me, are a little different. If you go read 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, Paul says this about prophets. He said, a prophet is used by God for strengthening, encouraging, and comfort. He goes on to say, prophets will build up and edify the church. In chapter 14, verse 31 of 1 Corinthians, Paul says they offer instruction and encouragement. What I have noticed through history, through Christian history, there are prophetic voices in the church that speak to the church, challenge the church to repentance, to confession, to right living. Sometimes those voices challenge the church to answer calls in society. And, and what's interesting about prophets is they're not always necessarily these loud, outspoken kind of people. Some people mistake that. For example, when I arrived at Southwestern Seminary years ago, there was a very humble, quiet man on our campus. He was, he was older by the time I arrived. His name was T.B. Maston. He's a prophet, but he wasn't loud. He just, that was not his voice, but his voice was prophetic. He challenged the church to rethink some of our positions on social issues rooted in biblical theology. So now what I've noticed about the people that I believe have been used by God in the New Testament era to be prophets, they don't usually call themselves prophets. They just do it, Okay. All right, y'all still with me? <clears throat> Let's talk about apostles. Because once again, the, the apostolic calling is a little more challenging for us, I believe. Here's what I'd say about apostles. The Greek word means one who is sent. That's all the word means. Thus, apostles are often characterized by a pioneering faith and what I would call an entrepreneurial spirit and a certain restlessness with the status quo. Apostles are committed to the fulfillment of Christ's commission. And apostles are attuned to the DNA of the church and they work to create structures that support expansion and growth. Apostles are multi-gifted kind of people, in my opinion, in that function. They don't just push the church forward. They help create structures that will support the weight of the decision to move forward. That's also a part of the apostolic calling. The apostle 
to me, the apostolic function is catalytic. It's on the edge of the church. The apostolic voice in the life of the church is constantly prompting the church, encouraging the church to engage in new frontiers of ministry and mission. Now, in the Bible, in the New Testament, you have apostles that I would give them the capital A. Those are the 12 apostles. Later, Matthias, the apostle Paul. As a matter of fact, in Matthew 10, verse 2, Matthew calls them the apostles, the disciples that Jesus called and named. That word is actually used in Matthew 10. They're eyewitnesses of the ministry of Jesus. They're eyewitnesses of the resurrection of Christ. Well, obviously, none of them are alive today. Okay, so when I'm talking about apostolic function, that was how it worked when those men were alive. But you know what's, what's challenging is there are other people in the New Testament called apostles that we know nothing about. For example, in Romans 16, verse 7, Paul says to the church in Rome, he says, I want to come visit you, but until I get there, greet these people. And he says, greet Andronicus and Junia. That's a woman. And he says, they're outstanding among the apostles. Well, who in the world is Andronicus and Junia? Well, we don't know, but Paul called them apostles. So there's some evidence that there's a gifting, a function. It's not really a title necessarily. They're entrepreneurs. They're adventuresome. They're faith-filled. They're, they're advancers. They push the church into new windows of ministry. Can y'all think of any? Um, how about uh, Tilly? How about Cindy? How about Ashley? Does that make sense to y'all? We have people that tend to push, okay? They tend to challenge. What about this? Why can't? The apostle typically asks this question, why not? Why not? Now, once again, they can be positively irritating. Not Cindy, but, but I'm talking about <laughs> the rest. Not Cindy, Okay. Um, here's what's fascinating when we do this survey research do you know one of my primary giftings is apostle that's interesting but I know that to be true because there are times when I want to challenge the status quo of the church and ask it to take steps of faith to move forward and that's an apostolic function um, I'm a teacher and a shepherd but I've got apostolic um, proclivities in me and I know them and I recognize them um, but I believe we need apostles because apostles in the church help us create new ministries and then learn how to sustain them so here, here's what I would say y'all kind of in summary again this is just an introduction I want you to think back with me something I mentioned at the very beginning of this conversation last week or two weeks ago the competency of Christ and his body would you not agree with me that Jesus was completely competent as apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, and teacher? Would y'all not agree with me on that? Perfectly competent. He was all of that. Well, now he has ascended to the Father and he's left his body here. It just stands to reason that he's gifted his body to be competent as well together. Now, why do I think it matters? I mean, what difference does it make? If you're a cessationist or whatever, here's what I would say. This is why I guess I'm 
I'm sensitive to it right now because I've just completed reading this de-churching book and I'm burdened. 40 million American adults have left the church. We have the nuns. I was reading an article this past week. That's the fastest growing religious group in America. The nuns. And there are places like in Chicago and some other places where churches are being established by nuns. I'm not talking about N-U-N's. You understand what I mean? N-O-N-E-S. In other words, there's a group of people who just don't believe any of this, but they know they need community, so they're establishing things to find community, and some people are referring to them as churches, and they're for people who just don't believe all of this. It's the fastest growing group of people, religiously, in America. Do you know who's, who's gaining on them? The Duns. The ones who are just done. That group's growing. Gen Z, this young group that's growing here in the United States, this generation, separate from the church, um, think the church is irrelevant uh, when, you re- when you interview them. Um, not sure why they would ever even need a church. Don't believe there's anything like absolute truth And I guess I would just say to y'all as a pastor in this generation, I'm burdened about that. And so what I believe we need are churches that are healthy, that are dynamic, that are functioning biblically, and actually have these apostles and prophets and evangelists who are pushing us to rethink how we reach these people. Does that make sense? Because I'm burdened about the lostness of my society. And where are we going to be 25 years from now if we stand pat? Now, I trust the church with the big C. Y'all know that. I trust Jesus with everything in me. And I believe the church will prevail. But that doesn't guarantee success in your own generation, in your own context. Okay? And so, I'm burdened about it. And I want to see us think through ways that we can address the needs around us. And it seems to me... I don't understand it all. I'll be honest with y'all. It makes me a little nervous, okay? If somebody calls themselves an apostle, I don't like it. If somebody calls themselves a prophet, I don't like it. If somebody calls themselves an evangelist or a shepherd or a teacher, I'm fine with it. Why is that? <laughs> They're all listed. They're all important. They've all been given by Christ. But it's because apostle and prophet has been so abused, and so when somebody calls himself that, I go, oh, no, you're not. And then I'll turn right around and say, well, I'm a shepherd. They could look at me and go, no, you're not. I don't like that word. You know, people that call themselves shepherd. Well, I don't know why I'm comfortable with that. But I'm growing in my awareness and my desire to understand it. So I'm just inviting y'all on the journey with me as your pastor to try to figure all this out. Is that okay? So here's what I'm inviting you to do today. Pray. I'm asking us to pray and ask God to show us. How does all this work? How do we engage these functions at the right level and allow them to exist to each other, with each other, so that they can all be positively irritating. And I mean that in the best sense. So that we can encourage and bless and challenge one another to lead the church to be as effective as it can possibly be so that we can reach as many people with this good news of Jesus. Both here 
and around the world. That's my hope. So I invite you to pray with me that God will guide us in this year of exploration and journey. And let's be on this road together. So let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, as we uh, have these conversations, Lord, we, we want to honor you. We do. We want to honor you in what we do. We want to be obedient. We want to be biblical. And so I ask you to guide us, Lord, in this journey. I ask you to guide me as a pastor as I spend time reflecting and praying and studying our staff, our leaders in our church, our church family, how that we'll be on this journey together and we'll seek your will and you will find us faithful in what you've called us to do. And we pray for our society, our culture, our, our, our nation, our, our people that are in, in the category of nuns or duns or de-churched or unchurched. We ask that somehow your spirit would prompt them, that you would bring people into their lives or they might open doors of conversation so that they might find their way to you. Use us in that. And give us the sensitivity we need to be the church in this era. And we'll give you the glory for it. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.